Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. I want to mention some things that parents of young babies have to think about. They often think about where their baby sleeps. They think about why their baby cries or cries so much. They worry about SIDS. They worry about how much their baby sleeps. They worry about their baby's brain development. They worry about how to feed their baby and how to get support for it. And they worry about, you know, when their babies will start speaking. Now, of course, there's so much more, but I mention these in particular because they may all be related to something we definitely don't think about, how our babies breathe. If you're confused, don't worry, because this week is the first of two episodes covering these topics and more with the incredible Dr. James McKenna. Over two weeks, James shares so much wisdom about our babies, parenting, and this both older and newer line of research he's looking at, linking so many of these parenting issues to that most basic physiological function of breathing. This is one of my favorite conversations, and so without further ado, I bring you Dr. James McKenna. I am beyond excited to share with you today that I have joining me Dr. James or Jim McKenna, who I think needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway, just for any of you who happen to have lived under a rock for the last little while and may not know his work. So Professor Jim McKenna is recognized as the world's leading authority on mother-infant co-sleeping in relationship to breastfeeding and SIDS. He received his undergraduate degree in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley in 1970, his master's degree from San Diego State University in 1972, and his PhD in biological anthropology from the University of Oregon, Eugene in 1975. He's the head of the Mother Baby Behavioral Sleep Laboratory at the University of Notre Dame, where he has also won every teaching award he has ever been eligible for. He's published over 140 scientific articles, two monographs, one trade book, and has co-edited two other academic books. He has received extensive accolades for his work, including being admitted as a fellow to the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the In the Media Award from the American Anthropological Association in recognition of his work in educating the public to the importance of anthropological concepts. He regularly speaks around the world on co-sleeping, breastfeeding, SIDS, and mother-infant relationships. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure no one wants to hear from me at this point. Oh, everyone wants to hear from you, Jim. Don't be crazy. That's why. Did you not just do four lectures last month around yeah, the world? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I want to just correct one thing. It's kind of easy to be the uh, world's leading expert when for about 20 years, you're the only person in the world doing it. So the audience might not be quite so intimidated by that description. So I appreciate it, though, very much. Well, I think it's very true. You have been doing this for a long time, yeah. and you have advanced our knowledge so much in, in all of this. And I think what's going to come as a bit of a surprise is that contrary to, I think, what most people would expect, what we're going to really talk about today is a new piece of research that you're doing, right, that you've mm -hmm. kind of been looking at and and theorizing about. Yeah. And so I think it's it obviously ties into all of this, but it yeah. is a kind of a whole new avenue that you're going. But before we get there, I always ask, and I have to ask, how did you get into this? How did you even start thinking of looking at co-sleeping and breastfeeding and SIDS and, and all of that, especially because as I gather, you didn't actually start working with humans. 
No, no, actually, it's a really wonderful serendipitous story, which I suppose many of us have in one form or another. Um, and in fact, if, after my tenure at Pomona College, which I was lucky to teach for 20 years, um, if you had told me what you just said, that I'm known for SID, something called breastfeeding and, you know, co-sleeping behavior, I would have said, oh, I'm so sorry, Tracy, you got the wrong person. I studied the Indian langur monkey. I'm, I'm interested in non-human primate parenting ecology and so on and so forth. So it was as much a big surprise to me that the, the puzzle started fitting together as to, I guess you could say in retrospect, what I was actually supposed to be doing. And the timing was perfectly right. But my initial career was, in fact, looking at the evolution of human behavior, but specifically through looking at the lens of non-human primate, particularly parent-infant relationships, and looking at how early environments shape the ways in which individuals go through certain developmental experiences to prepare them for the kind of adult behavior they need to exhibit. So certainly, uh, kind of in a hidden way, my research was absolutely perfect for setting me in the place to be able to ask these seemingly at the time weird questions like, doesn't it seem odd that our babies are born neurologically the least mature primate mammal of all? And we think that at three to four to six months, these, these little babies should be, quote, independent. And isn't that true? I didn't know much about it. But there is this sort of syndrome called sudden infant death syndrome that seems very mysterious. And the rest of the world, insofar as um, co-sleeping and breastfeeding is concerned, have never heard about it. But I will tell you, in addition to this background that was unknowingly preparing me for what I was to do, what really got me into it was when my wife and myself, Joanne being the one carrying the baby, got pregnant. And we ran to the books as if I didn't know a thing about primates. And I actually did. And I even knew what non-human primate separations mean physiologically to those babies. But even so, like, you know, the hopeful, perfect dad I hope to be, I ran to the bookstores, as did Joanne. And we bought many books to tell us how to be the perfect parents, right? And it wasn't very long before which we really realized that either everything that both Joanne and I were learning in anthropology and especially me looking at the evolution of primate and human behavior and physiology, that it was clear that what we were reading in the recommendations literally had nothing to do with babies at all. And very recently to uh, reflecting novel social ideological positions of who we want babies to become and how we think we can get them there without ever considering who the human infant actually is and in what biological, physiological, and developmental systems, how do they actually differentiate from other mammals, including non-human primates? And then move from there to the question is, oh my gosh, so how should we take care of them? And the problem was for all the pediatric sleep models, they never asked the most important question, and that is what I just said, who is the human infant? We have to first know from a biological point of view, not to say even an evolutionary and the two are very connected, we have to actually know first who they are before we can actually discuss what might be in their best care, their best interest. And that wasn't the case by virtue of before, I dare say, white um, middle-aged men that never changed a diaper, I might add, 
been very invested in their careers and certainly were very um, intelligent and, and well-meaning individuals. But their idea of writing baby books or these suggestions of how babies should be cared for really led them into areas for which they really were not prepared insofar as there was some ethnographic records of mothers sleeping with their babies, but no one had actually focused on it in relationship to what our culture uh, has always favored, separation, autonomy, sleeping apart, without anyone ever looking at it, including the four physicians, Emmett Holt, Sigmund Freud, um, Benjamin Spock, and David Watson, the father of developmental psychology, the one that said uh, it's not possible for a baby to get too little attention and contact. <laughs> so there you are. Yeah. We began uh, with uh, individuals, however well-meaning, men recommending to millions of mothers how to manage and how to care for best their babies. And the data was not based on any observational empirical studies whatsoever. So consequently, we ended with some very bizarre, when you look at this species, as you so well know, Tracy, when we look at the species wide picture, not to mention our evolutionary perspective up to very, very recent times, one would quickly know, my goodness, a separation of the baby of our human infants particularly would not seem to lend itself to really good outcomes. So it was really this one thing led to another. Um, and the project that I actually am really trying to incorporate UC San Francisco colleagues into, though the pandemic put a big you know, a cover on that, so it hasn't proceeded as far as I would have guessed. But nonetheless, that idea, which I'll be discussing, is the connection potentially between the causes of inconsolable crying, sometimes referred to colic, and suddenly the death syndrome might be found on an entirely different adaptation that actually makes our species unique, which refers to speech breathing. What kinds of respiratory changes make humans unique and specifically related to the ability to talk in a physical way and as well a neurological way that integrates various systems that are very different but have to learn how to complement each other in terms of functioning the way uh, we need to, to be able to talk and yet go to sleep and not worry about purposely taking another breath. So interestingly, to get back to sort of the original question, it was a huge surprise. And yet it led me into understanding this concept of speech breathing of all things. I'd never even heard of it, even after taking three linguistic courses and, and subsequently never heard about it. And I was asking the question as I wrote my first monograph that was to lay the foundation for the laboratory studies I was going to propose, because it was early on I realized, gee, I'm, I'm being led into this area of thinking this could really be related to why Western societies are the only one that have this terrible tragedy of babies, seemingly ba healthy babies dying in the middle of the night from sleeping, well, as I would put it, alone and in cribs, as to have to be the case. And so it was in 1986, I actually published that monograph many years ago now. It was called An Anthropological Perspective on the Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, The Role of Parental Breathing Cues and Speech Breathing Adaptations. This was the original monograph that laid out why one would want to look at the seemingly at the time, a weird question. And I was making the case to my colleagues um, at UC Irvine School of Medicine, I was given a uh, 
honorary teaching position to teach medical students why evolution is important to consider in dealing with babies. But in any event, um, that was a rich, rich experience. But in any event, um, getting back to, to the idea, what precipitated the immediate decision was I went to a meeting in France, make a long story short, World Mental Health Association. I was invited to give a plenary address on how evolution can help us understand babies. I had four exemplars, fathering behavior, birthing experiences of our women, and where babies sleep. I didn't know a heck of a lot about SIDS at that time. Keep that in mind. So I gave the talk and I told why each question could be looked at from an evolutionary perspective to find, oh my gosh, for example, mothers are designed to give birth to their babies. Maybe we don't need 12 people to kind of like do it for them, so on and so forth. Some pretty fundamental questions being raised about those exemplars. But the one that got the attention in front of sleep researchers and infant mental health developmental people like yourself, Tracy, was uh, the sleeping issue. During the next three days, I had four of the major figures at that time pull me aside and say, Jim, you said somebody needs to study this in the introduction. You need to study that. If it's going to be studied, it's only going to be by you. Do it. First time I thought, oh, what a nice compliment. Oh, thank you. Because, you know, it was a very well reputed individual. The second time he said, oh, my goodness, this is getting attention. Another star told me, you got to study it. The third one came and the fourth one came. By the fourth one came with my sore shoulders from being pressed against the wall when these people are saying, you need to teach to, to understand and learn about this and study it. I said, before I left, oh my gosh, I'm about to embark on a new career. And I did, and I compressed my missing, really knowledge in neurobiology. I knew some, I had taken, you know, not courses in it, but big sections of it. So I had a nice introduction and all the SIDS research was being done on the brain and the respiratory system. So I knew coming in as a foreigner, I'm an anthropologist, they'd be saying, what does this guy know about sudden infant death syndrome? And, you know, I would rightly probably ask the question. So I knew I needed to lay out a foundation piece in this monograph, put all of the lines of evidence. Why would you ask it? What would you expect? What does the separation studies of non-human primates show beyond Harlow, you know, with his surrogate monkeys? It was all social issues in the future that how, did, how early experiences affected. But what had shifted in the 80s and 90s, which I was very well read on and new colleagues doing the research, I didn't do separation studies myself, but I was, well, I did one short-term three-hour separation of Indian Langer monkeys, but that was a very different question because they adopt the babies and they fight over who's going to get the baby um, while mom's gone. So we were looking at what would happen in that context versus the other. But in any event, um, that integration of these different lines made it clear that I needed to write the monograph, show people I had an argument it was reasonable. And the conclusion would be, here are the kinds of studies we need to do. We need to, for the first time in the history of the planet, look at really what amounts to normal, healthy human infant sleep. And that would be a mother breastfeeding her baby, sleeping next to her baby, sleeping on its back. And so it was. But I got there by learning things I absolutely never intended, the most important of which is manifested in this new seemingly new paper 
um, that was based on the monograph, but now, of course, it's updated on this notion of how the brain is different in regards to breathing. You basically made a liar out of me because I claimed it was all new and I had completely missed the 86 monograph there. So... (laughs) You wouldn't wouldn't know that. I mean, and still to this day, I'll say something to even my linguistic anthropology friends. Oh, what about speech breathing? I mean, that's so uncritical. What breathing? Speech breathing? What is it? So, I mean, it's been a fascinating thing because people really, they can't believe when they didn't hear about it, you know, as well, anthropologists or linguists or even biological people. And yet it's really a, a major transition in a major difference. But I know you have questions for me trying to get at that. So I'm going to pass the baton and say. Uh, You could just keep talking for the entire time and I'll just sit here and listen for the whole thing. But yes, I I do have questions. I want to first though say, I absolutely love the way you said we have to know our baby. Like we have to know who are we dealing with. And I had never as ridiculous as this sounds, because you'd think I would have thought of this before. I hear that all the time when you're thinking about a personality level, a temperament, a specific kind of thing. But yes, it comes down to just knowing a biological baby. What are you, you know, what are we looking at? Every baby, the part that is similar about human babies, still, we're looking at a human baby. And going in with that is so crucial. And I just it felt like that little aha moment as you said it of, yeah, exactly. That's what we need to look at. And yet what we don't, it's true. All of our caregiving practices in the West are based on this idea of what they should look like when they're 20 and somehow trying to scale it back down. But of course that never works. You know, you don't start feeding your baby solids at a month because you want them to eat steak when they're 20. That just doesn't make any sense. But I love that. Thank you. That is, I'm using that now forevermore. That's going to be something I keep reminding people about. And you know, it's, it's the richness and the privilege then and how important it is for disciplines to actually cross talk because the insights that are normal for us to look, well, if you're starting to make recommendations for baby, you got to consider it brings to it an evolutionary history that's real. And it's been very successful for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, that's not going to be nullified by the speed by which cultural ideologies change through time, because biology is more constant. And it's the culture, our, our gift, so to speak, that we don't need the genes to change for major changes in our social thinking. And that leads to changes in behavior and what we do. And given that the only thing that humans ever specialized in is not specializing in anything at all, we are the quintessential generalists when it comes to diet and locomotor movements and just the general range of habitats we can we can colonize as human beings it's huge and so this thing called culture or technology and language which are, which fit together it's sort of one biocultural system really uh, kind of inspired a way of thinking in us. And so I don't want to think, oh, I'm just so the smart one here. But from the training, it is a very logical question to ask initially, well, what were the studies that actually showed that separation actually did anything for babies? And the sad thing is that it did do something to Western industrialized babies. It caused sudden infant death syndrome. We dismantled the three major components, Tracy, Tracy which is 
how to feed your baby, changed it to bottle formula feeding. Oh my goodness, risk factor for SIDS. We put babies on their tummies because we thought it would promote deeper sleep, uninterrupted sleep, and fewer arousals. Well, arousal deficiencies are thought to be one of the primary causes of SIDS, and we know that even regardless of whether it is or isn't, we know that prone belly face down sleeping is one of the top three risk factors for babies dying. And guess what the third one is? It's called keeping babies in separate rooms by themselves. And that is now supported by the fact that babies have twice the chance of dying of sudden infant death syndrome should be stated as a 50% increase of risk by merely sleeping in another room. Now, as you all probably know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, while they don't want you to bed share, they certainly don't any longer want babies to sleep in rooms by themselves. It's called room sharing. But what I like to remind people of is it's not the room that's protective. It is person sharing. Oh, and what do you know? It's mother sharing. Yeah. And that should be indicated. It isn't a room. A room is an inert struct set of structures having nothing to do with what happens to babies. But obviously, the location of that baby has everything to do with the status of that, that baby. Yes, 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 yes. It is. And as you said about the cross disciplines, too, it's, I will say, it's one of the things I always feel has influenced me was as you mentioned, you did your undergrad at Cal and we were chatting. So did I. And I did not anthropology, but I did cognitive science, which was an interdisciplinary undergrad because we had computer science, psychology, neuroscience, linguistics, philosophy. Those were our yes. little buckets. And it was so important to me to see how all these areas intertwined. But yet, so often, no one ever thinks about intertwining those areas. It's just, you know, I'm looking at sleep just from, you know, a, like psychological studies on sleep are kind of abhorrent. They have a very narrow outcome of what they're looking for, which is generally how happy parents are. Well, and that's about, right? That's well, it. How consolidated the sleep is, which is exactly in not the best interest of babies. They don't consolidate their sleep in four exactly. or six months. No. Not at all. No, it's uh, and you know what? Some of them take a lot longer than that, which is kind of related to what we're getting to, which is apparently, I apologize, not new research, but kind of new. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a mix of the new and the old. Right. So we are going to talk about this breathing issue. And you gave a really great introduction to that about this, this speech breathing and everything. So but just to get everyone on the the same page, you kind of identify how breathing moves from autonomic to more like volitional or effortful. So can you kind of describe the differences in this type of breathing that we have? As you said, even linguistics will say, excuse me, speech breathing. Right, right. Um, and I had to go back when you said it, I went back to my linguistics classes at Cal and I'm like, I don't know that I heard speech breathing, but maybe I did. Maybe my memory is just that bad, but certainly it. <laughs> I, I didn't trigger for me. So can you know, we just get to the stage because I want sure. everyone to understand what we're talking about, what it is that we have, how it developed so that we just kind of have this baseline. Well, first of all, it could be considered a really unique feature of human identification and characteristics, etc. And basically what it's referring to is, in a sense, the emergence of a symbolic system of communication, one form of which is hand movement and gesturing, etc., which probably preceded actually the vocal messages with the hand gesturing. But 
we became quickly um, quite skilled with the increasingly large brain and the development of what's called the neocortex, the, the newer part of the brain and the interconnections it shares and the proliferation of neurons it shares in communication with the lower brain stem, which is the more conservative older brain. And one of the first questions I had to ask about trying to figure out what is this SIDS all about? Why Western industrialized societies? Is there anything unique first about human breathing control or whatever, like some way we distribute oxygen in the body? I had no idea. And what I learned from a whole school of research, usually in studies of the deaf, of deaf children, et cetera, I think it emerged out of that, what we can do to help and promote uh, you know, more full and vibrant hearing. What I learned is about this speech breathing. I never had thought about it myself, that humans very fluidly and very effortlessly, anytime they want, after they um, learn this system, they can immediately change entirely the way they are manipulating air. What, what Tracy is doing right now, and most of you that might be listening to me at this point, you're, you're doing what's called tidal breathing or maintenance breathing or quiet breathing. And the timing of your inhalation is about equal to the timing of your exhalation. It's just an even little curve, time out, time in, time out, time in, so on and so forth. Well, looking at my hands there, I'm just doing a nice even you know, wave. But what happens, think about for a minute, the minute, the second, millisecond, you decide to talk effortlessly. You take charge of your breathing. You pull in some air quickly, quick inhalation. You control the speed by which the air is moving out of your mouth and you, you control the volume of air released. And then you see if you can get to the end of your sentence, which usually you can do, pull in, wait, and then to talk again. And you can do this just effortlessly. And in fact, your body learns at between three and, uh, well, it starts at about a one month of age. I should go back. At one month of age, something interesting happens. Your brain releases control of terminating apneas, babies terminating apneas at about one month. Up to one month, the autonomic system will take care of the babies. If they get a little breathing pause or whatever, the chemoreceptors will monitor the carbon dioxide versus oxygen. And if it gets too high on the CO2 range, the phrenic nerve is stimulated. That is, move that diaphragm, get that CO2 out. Perfectly great system. It works 99.9% .9 of the time. It, it's amazing. But what happens is a singular control of breath, controlled by the autonomic, which means you know it's reflexive, you don't have to worry about it. That autonomic brainstem-based system is all the babies are working from that up till about a month of age, give or take. Now remember, this is variable with different babies. And at about a one month of age, the cortical structures of which there are three, I'm not going to give you the neurobiology, you don't want to know that would conceptually, this is what actually this is at this stage, but it does have its names and who, who needs them at this point. But just to know that there is a great cortical innervation um, and communication that is structured by way of three interesting big nerve tracts out of which different spirals of types of neurons emerge. And it includes the spinal cord all the way up to the brain. The brain stem, of course, is located in the sub under the cortex in the lower third of the brain. And there is an integration of those systems and it's gradual. 
through time. At first, babies in that first month, they can't mimic a sound in the environment. They can't make a cough. It's so much that they wanted, wanted to, but it will just automatically happen if they need to, to clear its throat. And so the autonomic system, even when they're going to sleep and they're mostly in REM, which is more of a kind of an erratic kind of sleep, et cetera. Anyway, the autonomic system is controlling the air volume, how much oxygen saturation the baby has. And it knows when to get rid of some, some old air and bring in new air. And thus getting rid of this carbon dioxide. But at about one a month or so, a new system begins to kick in into operation. It's sort of like a little bringing back the first significant developmental shift of a baby. Picture a baby that's gradually, after about a month, learning more how to control its arms or its legs purposely for purposeful activity, decision-making behavior. And what's happening is the brain is giving way from this control by the brainstem to one in which the higher brain actually is permitting the baby gradually to grab control of its air and hear something and try to do it. Now you can even see this process. It's so interesting once I learned of it, of babies that are about maybe a month and a half, maybe even two months. And you see them, they heard a noise and they're, they're trying to, to do it. And they can't do it. They are, but they're trying, and they're they're gurgling, and even. And once you hear about this, you can actually see it. And I've seen it in my own son after I learned when he was learning how to speak and all that. Anyway, the point is that a singular system is integrating with a higher cortex system, giving babies a shared control over breathing. It eventually permits you, no matter at what stage you're in, to control it volitionally by desire and when you want to do it exactly how long you want to do it how fast you want to do it how loud you want to do it all of those variables are under cortical control after about seven months of life but during that first one month to four months or so that's when this system is really kicking in and changing and different neurons are collaterally integrating so that the brain stem and the spinal cord uh, nerve tracts, major nerve tracts, are actually increasingly becoming integrated with higher thinking, uh, volitional, wanted, uh, getting your getting babies wants for the first time, wants accommodated. Now, we always like to say that with respect to babies, that for the first two to three months, for the most part, babies don't really have any wants. They don't have the cognition associated with, hmm, yeah, I'm going to try to get that from mom. Yeah, that's good. I want that, you know, they don't want it. Their bodies are the closest to their genes they're ever gonna get. And their genes are finding expression, pretty much direct expression. They don't care what culture you're in or what's normal or healthy. The body of the baby is speaking, the genes are speaking, that's clear. Obviously during that first year, babies start beginning to acquire cognition to maybe minimally evaluate things or know what it might wanna grab or who they might wanna look at. And that's under this same kind of purposeful control I'm referring to in terms of breathing control. The baby learns during this period from, as I say, it's varied between one and six to seven months, how to mimic sounds when they wanna do it. That's very important to consider when they want to do it, as well as the actual sound being translated into this uh, kind of mimic uh, effect. 
What's fascinating is that crying behavior is exactly practice for speech breathing. Eventually, after that month, you'll hear an acoustic melodic change in babies crying. And it's because those babies are now beginning to be able to cry how they want to cry. What's bothering them? Maybe they're lonely. Maybe their diaper needs to be changed. They could be in pain. Um, they could be restless or just impatient or some metabolic and they decide to cry. Before that period, you can even see it that the cries are more like, like the, you know, that stereotype, wah, wah. They're, they're staccato. They jump around and they're not actually contiguous with each other necessarily. And eventually what's going to happen is the baby has a role in choosing the intensity, the particular uh, vibrancy, the volume of it, and it's controlling the air underlying it. It's all about that air, don't forget, that you can grab it when you want it. You can hold back against the glottis how much you want to get to the end of your mel melody or to get to end as it will eventually be your sentence or what you want to say so that you're, you're not talking like this. You just, you're not timing your, your speech. You want to take enough air and gosh, no, still, we don't know how we actually learn this, but we do learn it because the difficulties and degrees of intelligibility that babies, babies have are correlated with the degrees of deafness, which is correlated with the ability of the baby to perceptively hear what they're saying and do corrections to getting it right and or hearing from others, their breath, believe it or not, your chemoreceptors, when you talk to somebody, they're changing your breathing pattern. You're breathing in their carbon dioxide. And they just by breathing it in, you have a different balance of CO2 and oxygen. And the diaphragm, the phrenic nerve is getting little signals sooner than it would be otherwise if you were just in a room by itself. So I'm going to, and my career has been about appreciating the physiological regulatory effects of mothers and babies, because this is the most salient time of external physiological regulation. But don't think for a moment that when we are in social interactions, there is an underlying physiological, neurological kind of channel and current that is regulating both of the adults that might be involved and children. So going back to the separation of, of, of mind and body, oh my gosh, we know that now anyway. But the degree to which it's true is remarkable. And so getting back to the original point, so speech breathing itself, you change the amount of air inhale, you change the amount of pressure that you keep in your lungs, your residual capacity, because you don't want to run out of total air because it would ruin the end of your sentence or whatever you want to say. You're determining the speed, you're determining the amount of explosiveness, like think of yelling, you know, and you, you lose a lot of air um, when you do. You can't sustain it like you could if you're just going like this, nice and softly and tightening the glottis, you know, which is the, you know, the uh, above the trachea, etc. And the muscles, the laryngeal larynx there, that's the key there for speaking and, you know, closing these structures off. So speech breathing really is different from the tidal volume, which is on both sides of the exhalation and inhalation, the timing, the volume, the airflow speed is the same. So this is something, 
immediately, if you think about it, when you talk, you're really doing something very different. In addition to relying on your, what's called the Wernicke area, the, where your biochemical units for words are based, you need the words to be able to say something. So that's another system of learning that involves its own neurological structures and the famous arcuate fasciculus, which is its, I make my students uh, memorize this one structural band that connects the motor movements of speech, which is in the front four part of the brain with the comprehension of words and the meaning of words that are right by your ears, the nuclei for that are right next to your ears, right appropriately, where the, um, the Wernicke's area um, is the center of word formation in, in most of us. Sometimes it's on the left side, 10% of left-handers have a lateralized brain on the other side, but it functions the same way. Um, so it's a fascinating set of behaviors. And now obviously, Dogs and cats think of animals in general. They can be predicted to make sounds at certain times. Um, you can hear dogs who are making these little, you know, squirreling sounds when they want something or they're lonely or, or everything. But that's their, a different part of the brain that's operating there. It's called the amygdala. It's an emotional center. And it's typically related to more directly, at least, um, directly to the kind of survival system. Um, even dogs that are, you know, have incredible ranges of emotions, as many of us know. Um, I even hear myself when, with our dog who passed away many years ago, but I used to say, Keska, I know what you're thinking. And no, it's a no. <laughs> and I didn't know what he was thinking. You know, and of course you did. <laughs> you guys out there know too. So dogs are pretty darn, pretty great, pretty super. But they don't have the wiring that is the needed essential ingredient of speech. Now, Wernicke's areas and Broca's area, Broca's is the physical control of speech. And then this famous arcuate fasciculus, I love to say the word when I can, but the fibers that integrate the two, but it goes across the whole span of the left hemisphere of the brain that ties together the motor physical control, where to put your tongue and your lips and even your, your glottis, which you don't know you're learning, which is the interesting area of research going on now, but in any event. So that gives you an idea of this, the presence of this system. And I, when I go through my intro anthro courses and I'm defining who humans are, I say, don't ever forget speech breathing. And I teach them because I know most people don't know anything about it. And once, once you hear it, you'll never really forget it. And it's interesting to appreciate how flawlessly you can trust your body while you're sleeping not to be thinking about breathing, you know? But interestingly, when you have a dream, guess what happens? You go in and out of speech breathing. And your breathing changes in accordance to the content of your dream, if you can believe that. A few years ago, it was discovered, this is fascinating too. I had nothing to do with this research, but it's, it's wild. You know, it used to be REM was defined by your eye movements going randomly back and forth. No, it's not random at all. Yes, that's rapid eye movement sleep. It's still defined that way. But where those eyes are looking is content specific. Really? I you to think about that. That you're dreaming and your brain is picturing what you're dreaming and your eyes are looking at what is 
going on and where in your dream it's going on. Amazing, huh? Remarkable. Wow. I guess it makes, I mean, you think about mirror neurons and stuff, it makes sense that we would actually still be mapping to something even if it's not there, but. Because don't forget, you're as close to being awake in REM um, as you'll get. Now, most older people, that's why they have a little trouble sleeping, the transitions between going back into what's called quiet sleep, you know, your stage one, two, three, four, um, is so much easier when you're younger. Um, not all older people, speaking one who doesn't have that trouble, uh, so, but a lot of people do. And I always like to say when they're complaining, wait a minute here, do you know your body is taking care of you? I mean, that's really good. You know, arousal is the way you oxygenate and you get awake. And maybe you need to get that waking period to stabilize your breathing. So when your body's doing that, don't think, oh my gosh, I'm going down the tubes. I can't sleep anymore. No, it's a good thing. You're arousing and getting oxygenated. That's not bad. Your body's taking care of you. It's important to keep that in mind. Bodies is, always drive toward health. They're always trying to protect you. True. They're not trying to put you down in the hole or whatever you want to call it. No, it is protecting you. Your pain and everything else, it's protecting you. Scabs and blisters protecting you. So, you know, we, we're quick to assess pathology and everything we see, but your body's amazing. Let it do its work. When you can't go to sleep, say, okay, take care of me, body. I'm just going to let you do your thing. It reminds me of with babies. You know, we think about their arousals as being, oh, yes. yes, it's not, and we'll get there. But you said two things that I have, well, three things, actually. I Maybe two, I don't know. Oh, we'll see. That I have to follow up on. You talked about this move towards volitional breathing, et cetera, the behaviors. And I don't know if there's work on this because I haven't seen it, but is it also intricately linked to the transition I do know of in which babies do start looking for that co-regulation from an emotional regulation perspective? So it seems to all be happening around the same time, this, the breathing, everything, but also the, okay, I know I can't bring myself down. So I need to get someone else. And that's part of the volitional looking and kind of... Totally, Tracy. It's all about keeping the trajectory of brain growth and what is needed. All of these are beyond culture. These are species-specific characteristics. And if it's one thing I've learned about the field of neurobiology and the brain, holy moly, I've become convinced that every neuron in your brain, which is beyond billions, knows what every other neuron is doing. I mean, I'm really beginning to think that whatever way you cut the brain, up, down, sideways, you name it, those neurons that you've bifurcated or whatever, they all have roads through this remarkable network that is inconceivable, even perhaps for computers, that you could have such significant integration. So... Yes, it is related. And what interestingly research in anthropology has, has done the biological side is have um, outlined why women go into labor at the time they do. We are, I've argued this all my life and hopefully introduced it to the medical community that humans have to be born relatively early due to the architecture of the pelvic unit, which has the very same time babies' brains were getting bigger and adult on the other side of life adult brains were getting huge, the pelvic girdle to accommodate freeing the hands for making tools and doing all the smart things we did 
the pelvis changed and transitioned into a bipedal creature for carrying, for manipulating the environment, all kinds of good things, great hand-eye coordination. But at the same time, again, there was a conflict between the ability to do these great things, that is having this incredibly wired, neurologically relatively large brain to body size, but it required babies to be born relative to other mammals well before their brain was mature. So we end up being the only primate, for example, monkey ape prosimian, that can't cling at birth. Our babies can't hold on. Every primate can do that very well because their motor neurons are, are well developed. But our babies, they can't control their thermoregulation. They can't control their digestion. They have no control over their defecation patterns, etc. feces release. Um, I mean, every system of the baby. But what happens in this newer part is, yes, there's an obstetrical issue. The baby's got to get out. Or if it stays in longer, mother baby die. But what else is triggering it is that the energetic requirements in the uterus for the baby's brain to continue at the trajectory of growth that it's experiencing can no longer be supported by the mother. In other words, the energetic requirements of the baby are far exceeding what mother now can provide. So it's time for that baby to be born to get, as Tracy was suggesting, a whole new arena of social sensory experiences with the breast becoming the new umbilical cord, delivering all the antibodies, delivering all the hundreds, thousands of proteins, all the oligosaccharides, you name it, all these proteins. And specifically that 24% of energy of this brain that's consumed by, by each of us, and particularly with babies with their growing so quickly, that energy, that needed energetic uh, push isn't available to be given by mother alone. And that actually is true even after babies are born. One of the larger issues in understanding the evolution of human emotions, empathy, etc., is we can fall in love with anybody, literally. We can, and we fall in love with people that aren't kin at all, babies that just because they're babies, you could fall in love with any of them. And that isn't to be taken for granted. That's a very unique and unusual proposition. And not only that, what species do you know of will give their life without thinking for the sake of another human being? What species do you think of will actually suffer and cry genuinely at the sorrow or the pain that somebody else is experiencing to the point that you're almost physiologically experiencing that same pain yourself? We are the empathic kings and queens of the universe all because we needed to bond together to take care of these incredibly energetically expensive babies over an extremely long period of time. So humans, at the same time, I'm not gonna go into how we could possibly do the mean things and terrible things we do, but the reason that we're all sitting here enjoying our species as we do in every corner of the world is because of this interesting empathy and theory of mind that we carry with us, that is we know what each other's thinking and feeling, and mostly we care a heck of a lot about it. And we define our own validity in terms of it in many ways. Our own importance, our own ability to love and be loved. And it all has to do with these vulnerable, incredibly energetically expensive little babies that need these environments. And getting back to the point is that these babies need even physically 
feeling breath on their faces from their mother's expelling carbon dioxide and simply the cells of the cheeks feeling these, the pantheon cells feeling the brush of air that comes out of mother's mouth and hearing the rhythms of language that's even started prenatally, hearing her, you know, bouncing around a little bit as mothers speak and getting a sense of kind of linguistic structures already, not, not to overdo it there, but to understand that this, that the same things that babies are going to need to be able to be prepared to do, that is to be pre-sensitized to in, by virtue of the womb experiences, they are there in place. And that's why, as Evelyn Toman found, if you want to improve little babies who have severe apneas, like maybe 20 to 40 second apneas, put them next to a breathing teddy bear with an air pump inside that goes up and down to the best breathing of these apnea prone babies. Well, she did that. These are called the breathing teddy bear study. And 60% of all those newborn human babies were wiped out. And the apneas were actually not any longer in deep stages of sleep, but in lighter stages of sleep, which can easily be corrected by babies, at least the autonomic system at that point. But nonetheless, that babies are sensitized to the, the signals that are going to buffer and actually create the abilities to develop mature organs. And so we don't know um, what are the mechanisms by which we acquire this skill and it is learned. And it comes, as I mentioned, I didn't elaborate that, but let me just say this about how we might know that or why I'm saying it. That as I mentioned to you in passing, that the intelligibility of a of a individual is determined by the degree of hearing. But the the longer and the harder the disability, to put it that way, hopefully that's still all right to say, um, lets us know how much the child or adult can learn in controlling breath. You may know of hearing impaired people that when they speak, they have a hissing sound underneath the words that they're talking. There's this air that's escaping that would otherwise have escaped if they were able to hear the way to suppress that and learn how to control the laryngeal muscles and the glottis, etc. In fact, the studies have shown that um, that uh, hearing impaired people lose three times the amount of air per syllable um, as normal hearing individuals. So there is a um, less uh, volume in the lungs at any given moment that can support long sentences. And in the worst scenarios, that timing of linguistic phrase with exhalation and inhalation is off. So 75% hearing impaired, you will, you will see a, a detriment in the individual who's working against, trying to speak against a, a low residual air capacity in the lungs, if any. So they're trying to, you know, if you were trying to speak beyond your, your air capacity, you, it would taper off and, you know, it would be, you know, it would be hearing you, you know, you'd be straining. It's like so, when you try to sing and you just keep going with the song, but you can't do it. I'm like, they have such better lung capacity than me and I'm fading exactly, away. Exactly. So one of, one of the first questions that was really a surprise, I didn't expect any of this to be able to say to you that, for example, that crying is practice for speech breathing and it's mirroring the ability of the 
integration of the volitional nerve tracts with those that can accommodate to the non-volitional or the autonomic with the volitional, which is achieved sometimes around seven months. That's the month that yeah, you, the baby essentially, while not speaking, can control its cry exactly the way it could control its speech if it was ready to be able to, to comprehend it. So let me ask a question here, because this is actually one of the things I did want to ask about. So saying that crying, I have two kind of parts to this, saying that crying is the practice, is that why we see across cultures that peak in crying around the two to three month stage? And I say that peak knowing that our peak is often much, much higher than peaks in other cultures as well. So there's that going on as well. But would that be, in essence, the kind of cause the biological cause for that increase in in crying do you think yes that's the connection to inconsolable crying yeah that my, my theory just to, to lay it out and remind me to come back and explain it but is that babies some babies have a lack of synchrony between the um, the major cortical bulbar versus reticulospinal those are the two involved here in the integration of initiating the cry and stopping the cry. And what I'm arguing is that it's much easier because excitatory neurons predominate in the prefrontal cortex where any decision-making about initiating a vocalization would begin. That I'm arguing the baby can initiate the cry very easily, but can't stop it because that's where the excitatory neurons that are later on in hitting the prefrontal cortex where this control over to do something or not is, is there. And so the, um, the basically babies are caught in a terrible loop. They start to cry at this point where there's not synchrony between these different nerve tracts. And suddenly the baby starts to realize it can't stop the crying and it does more out of fear than um, in terms of what does more of what it's trying to stop, which is to cry. So they're literally trapped in both systems. Um, as you put it very nicely, Tracy, this is a case where there's a hyperarousal where both systems are trying to work at the same time. The volitional, you know, to stop the cry and the non-volitional make the baby cry and there's no separation. So the poor baby is a victim, the biggest victim of this in and of itself. And this is what could be important if this idea and theory is correct why it's really would be important for parents to going through colic as it's sometimes referred to um, to understand that as bad as it is for them it's worse for the baby the baby just does not have any control over it the baby doesn't have an agenda here to make your life miserable here and so i think it would be uh, you know really make parents much more able to accommodate and be with their baby as they go through this because it won't be temp- it won't be permanent. Yeah. So I know it sounded like a really strange thing in this paper to be able to say as I did um, no I didn't say that in the colic part I absolutely had not thought of that when I wrote the monograph but it was primarily about the development of this volitional control and so the connection to SIDS is similar but it seems strange to put colic and SIDS together because colic is, as I say, this is a demonstratively, incredibly arousing situation for all. And SIDS is, we think, a very quiet, unfortunately quiet, tragic, 
kind of processual event that's happening to the baby where it's losing oxygen and it's not being replenished. That's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and will join me next week for even more with Dr. Jim McKenna. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.